As we look back over the, the last decade of church decline, only heightened by the COVID-19 pandemic, and um, uh, what, what do you think is on the other side of this liminal journey that many people of faith have left the institutional church? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 706-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Bradley Jersak. He is the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University. He is the editor-in-chief of clarionjournal.com. Bradley, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me today. Uh, So those that maybe aren't familiar with uh, St. Stephen's University and kind of the approach you take to theology and culture. Tell us a little bit about its, you know, um, kind of denominational context and, and approach. Sure. Well, one of the great things about it is that it's not denominational. And that is, it's a public university with a theology department out on the east coast of Canada in New Brunswick. And so the the really great thing about that is the diversity. So, for example, I'm a, I'm an Eastern Orthodox theologian. And then we also have people from vineyard background, uh, Anglican background, you know, so you get the full range in the sense that we're not streaming people to a particular ordination, but that we have people from across the theological and ecclesial spectrum joining us. And so even in our classes right now, we have Anglican priests as students, vineyard pastors as students, um, and then we've got people who aren't uh 
attending any church right now and and uh, not interested in that but they want to learn theology uh, let's say they're a spiritual director or a therapist and so a lot of mature students from various backgrounds all the way from Lithuania to Australia so one aspect is this online uh, potential that we have for people who are interested yeah it's fascinating it's higher education in many regards models for the rest of us what our world and community and churches should really be like, which is uh, surrounding ourselves with a diversity of individuals from different contexts and, and perspectives. Um, you know, what, what do you think makes for such a wonderful experience in having such a, a dynamic group of people coming together to learn, to share? Well, one of the aspects of that is that they learn the maturity of holding difference with respect. So, uh, let's say some of them have come from a bit of a of a, a church bubble where they've never really interacted in any depth with someone who was quite different than them. But uh, in our classrooms, which are very small, we do we run it like a seminar style. So you may have, you know, ten people in the classroom, and there's a lot of time for interaction with very experienced people. And I'm allowed to share this. You know, we had. Uh, one of our classrooms, we had Carol, who is um, a Christian, who's, a, I would say, non-ideological, but but a lesbian in a partnership. And she's sitting next to Bob, who's a conservative uh, minister from California, uh, who absolutely doesn't see eye to eye on that stuff, but they end up becoming dear friends. And she never accused him of being a homophobe and she, he never called her an abomination. And, and just uh, being in class after class together, it really opened their eyes to how uh, we can model uh, respectful conversations from people who, who see things very differently than ourselves. And then in our case, um, we've been able to extend that. So sometimes I will bring in my friend Safi Kaskas, who is a Muslim, and he's translated the Quran, but he believes you can't be a good a good Muslim if you don't follow Jesus. So we will sometimes team teach on the Beatitudes and a Muslim perspective on those. And um, what we're trying to do is model peacemaking and uh after the pattern of Jesus. And, and he would say to me, I, I don't want you to water down your faith for me. You need to come to these conversations as a Christian. And 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 then let's show these these folks how you could do that without without difference turning into hostility or violence. And that's one of the agendas of our school. We were talking about this kind of pre-recording um that you know, at one point you were um, ordained in, in, in Mennonite tradition and now in the Orthodox tradition. Um, you know, for many of us, we might have grown up in one particular Christian tradition, if you will. Um, yeah. You know, how do you, you know, maybe to borrow from our friend of the program, Brian McLaren, how do you think this generous orthodoxy has has formed you into being a better minister, a better theologian, a better teacher? Yeah, wonderful question. So, there's two ways you can go at it when you begin um, crossing denominational lines. So um, one way is you can you can just think about how awful the last place was and how much more enlightened you are that you're in the new place, which is sort of like I call that ex-smoker syndrome. <laughs> and um, but the other way you can come at it and that I've chosen to come at it that's very fruitful is 
is to uh, gather the gifts along the way of the various families that you've experienced. So for me, I grew up in a Baptist home for 20 years where I learned the name of Jesus and I fell in love with Jesus. I fell in love with scripture. I learned to pray there and I, I developed a, a heart for sharing the good news of Jesus, you know? So those four things have never left me. And now when I look back, you know, there was some weird stuff like when the revivalists would come through, but I can let that go as part of my story and enjoy those Baptist treasures right now today. Then 10 years with the Mennonites, I uh, was a youth, young adults, and outreach pastor, and they taught me uh, the value of living the Sermon on the Mount and the centrality of Jesus to interpreting the whole of Scripture. And then my wife and I, we went off and planted a church that you might think of as like low, small C charismatic. And, um, you know, there were folks there who had had some charismatic background, vineyard background, Pentecostal background, but also, you know, Baptist Reformed and Mennonite. And we'd come together to focus mainly on people with disabilities, people on the margins, the homeless, the uh, folks in, in um, the recovery community dealing with addiction. So that was less theological, but it was very much a praxis of having an open table where we would minister like that. And um, and so that heart for the, the those on the margins has never left me and the openness to the spirit that the small C charismatics call for. And then I went um, 10 years ago. I'm getting old now, right? There's a lot of these things, but uh, now I've been in your Eastern words, Orthodox not mine. Church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I've been in the Eastern Orthodox Church for 10 years and I'm a monastery preacher at a local monastery where the monks are and a congregation forms on Sunday and They've taught me uh, the value of a liturgical life where we're repeatedly um, affirming that God is merciful and we pray, Lord, have mercy. And, and um, that there's a sensuality to it uh, in the sense of all five senses are engaged in a service. You know, you're smelling the incense and the colorful icons on the wall, the texture of wax candles, all of that stuff. And Wow. So I, I I have an embarrassment of riches from those four traditions and that I've learned each of their language and I'm probably not fluent in any of them anymore, but I'm, uh, it enables me to, to, to enjoy the, um, you know, to see what, what people intend as faithfulness and to know that God, God understands that these various ways that we, um, act out our Christian lives. The one element of that is diversity and another is a, is a heart to be faithful um, in our particular church culture. And let's face it, yeah, these are these are cultures and I, I like being cross-cultural. It's, it's enjoyable. We are excited for a free giveaway sponsored by the NRSV updated edition from Zondervan. Zondervan has given us beautiful leather-bound NRSV updated editions to share with our listeners. We are giving one of these comfort print Bibles to the first listener that shares this episode on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Here's what you need to know. Be on the lookout for CBF's post about this episode. Click and share that post with the phrase, I want an NRSV updated edition. Be the first to do this, and we will mail you a new leather-bound NRSV updated edition. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. 
How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. You have a a new book, um, Out of the Embers. This book examines the journey of deconstruction. You wrote deconstruction and its popular usage has been re, uh, reconstrued into a trendy catchword for dismantling of beliefs and values of persons or culture in assent to the term while also deconstructing it and retrieving it more radical and historical and expansive meaning. Um, why deconstruction? What, what motivated you to write this book? Uh, great question. Well, for one thing, at least uh, the, the circles I've been traveling in and the kind of... Um, places social media takes me, I see that word a lot. And I hear it used a lot in that popular sense. And people almost talk about it like a testimony. Well, when I went through my deconstruction, <laughs> and, um, and, and I felt motivated to write it, uh, because um, on the one hand, a response to those who are who are experiencing or undergoing or enacting deconstruction, is from the hand-wringing pastors who think it's just backsliding. And I'm saying, no, that's not it. And if you try to exercise control on folks like this, and if you condescend to them as if they're just losing their faith, then you will you you will miss their hearts. You won't understand what's up. And not only should we be unafraid of their deconstruction, we should be uh, companions in it, because this is the church tradition. On the other hand, there's also the deconstructionists online who are, you know, I I think of them as cheerleaders and they're waving pom-poms and telling people, yeah, burn it all down, empty the pews. You know, the the solution is to get rid of not only religion, but Christianity and ultimately Jesus. And I'm like, well, that's not it either. So from those two opposing points of view, what happens is people will write me repeatedly, probably daily where it's like, I, I'm going through a deconstruction, I'm afraid that I'm losing my faith, or I've been alienated uh, by my church, or even my family, I'm an outcast now, I'm so lonely, and I don't know what to do. And I don't want to lose Jesus, but it feels like I might be, you know, and so the first order of business, in my opinion, is not to cheer that on or to rebuke it, it's to step in with empathy. And so I think what I'm doing in the book is I'm I'm taking a posture of empathy to a very complex phenomenon where every story is different and can range all the way from liberating to traumatic. Um, and so uh, in in acknowledging the complexity, then I can, you know, hopefully speak a kind and uplifting word to those who feel bewildered right now and that maybe, um, their deconstruction could lead them deeper into the heart of God rather than away from it. 
since this buzzword is so flippantly used today, I've, I've received more books recently from publishers promoting, um, you know, a, a more conservative outlets, warning people of the dangers of it. Um, I wonder if you'll give us a historical and philosophical definition of deconstruction. Um, okay, so maybe I'll, I'll fly through history. The first great deconstructionist I see is Moses, and he is dismantling a golden calf. And this becomes an archetype for the way that the Jewish and Christian tradition would recognize how vulnerable we are to creating false images of God. So anytime we enter into uh, um, an interrogation of our constructs of God, that's, that's one way of talking about deconstruction. We look at the constructs and we say, God is bigger than our constructs. What are some ways these constructs could be hindering us from knowing him? And it could be just blatant idolatry like you see in, in, in the golden calf um, incident. Another way of seeing it is the prophetic tradition of Israel, where they identified corruption within the temple establishment. And they spoke on behalf of God from a minority report or marginalized point of view. And so, so that could be, you know, that's a, that's part of the tradition. It's a major part of the Old Testament, which is the most self-critical spiritual text in of any religion by far. What's it doing? It's deconstructing um, the ways that the, the, the system had gone astray. And then, of course, Jesus does this to the nth degree. And um, what is, you know, what is he doing? His work of deconstruction was assessing how how um, the temple establishment had externalized these laws and behaviors into moralism, and he wanted to go back to the heart. So this idea of, of, of getting back to the roots of things, it's very Anabaptist, by the way, too. It's it's peeling back the accretions that and the, what would we say, like the tarnish on the faith, and, it's, it, and re, um, revitalizing it, really. Uh, from water to wine, so to speak. And then in the early church, you've got a, this theology of deconstruction that we call the apophatic theology. And basically, it's just saying um, a lot of what we say about God is just not true. Uh, perhaps we can look at talking about what God is not, because God is beyond all of our notions, all of our constructs, all of the images we craft for him that turn into boxes that we put him in. Those boxes need to be dismantled. And then fast forward to the 1960s, then Jacques Derrida came along and he used the word deconstruction, but his was philosophical. And his idea was uh, deconstruction was not anti-faith at all. It, he was examining the way words are used to import uh, power structures into a, into a culture or conversation. And, and so that became sort of, okay, deconstruction has to do with that. But this kind of popular version of it, I think maybe gets back to the ancients. And in, in this way, um, David Hay Hayward, a cartoonist, he's also known as the naked pastor. He began using this word just over a decade ago. And for him, what it meant was we begin to ask questions. And so deconstruction, that all of that I've said to get up to this point is that 
really deconstruction is is permitting oneself to question um, our faith and and the constructs around our faith. And for some, that's going to look like uh, unraveling and people do lose their faith. There are perils to this. But it's also necessary and there's great possibilities if in, in questioning our faith, we begin to see how it how it's become distorted or perverted somehow. So a simple example that would be when Christianity gets politicized, that's that's a perversion of the faith. And so deconstructing in that sense is questioning that uh, the marriage of of Christian faith to political or ideological parties or movements. And so that needs deconstructing. Simply put, for me, it's like, I thought God was this way, and now I'm questioning that. And I am finding out personally that God is much more Christ-like than I ever thought. <laughs> and so so um, that's a extensive answer to a quite an incisive question. But anyway... <laughs> I did my yeah. best. It would have been it would have been great if you just said, "Well, just read the book." Um, <laughs> um, you know, from from a biblical perspective, isn't Jesus' invitation to follow him into an ongoing act of deconstruction, leaving the old and discovering the new? Isn't the literal translation of repentance change your way of thinking and living in an active and future tense? Yes. <laughs> there, that was concise. <laughs> I think that's exactly it. And he uses metaphors for this, right? Born again. What is that, right? Um, water to wine. This is the, this becomes the guiding imagery for everything he's doing in the Gospel of John. He is he's he is transforming something through a process of metamorphosis. How do you go from being a caterpillar to a butterfly, right? But also, you just described repentance. Uh, literally, from the Greek metanoia, it is it is a transformation or a turning of the noose, and that gets sometimes translated mind, but it's much more than that. It is the it is your innermost being, and it is reorienting yourself away from the shadows of delusion toward the light of the goodness of God, and and that I discuss in the book, even going back to. Um, the Greek philosopher Plato in his cave analogy, where we're chained to the walls of this cave and staring at the shadows as if that's reality. And somehow, by grace, someone breaks those chains and we turn around and we see that there's an opening out into the light and where we can go out and gaze on the light of the sun, which represents um, God or the goodness of God. And so the noose, that part of you that turns, it's that's what Paul means by the eyes of your heart. We redirect the eyes of our heart, which then redirect the whole orientation of our lives back towards God. From And in a sense, that's what's going on in the, in the story of the prodigal son. It's uh, for Jesus, then, the, this process is about returning home. One of the brilliant aspects of the book was your ability to weave the scriptural basis of deconstruction with various thinkers and philosophers throughout history, such as Voltaire and Nietzsche. Um, you call them sleepers. What do you mean by that? And why are these diverse voices important for people of faith as we look at deconstruction? 
Um, well, first of all, yeah, that section, I call it the seven sleepers. And really, that's based in an in a interesting legend of the seven sleeper, sleepers of Ephesus. And it's the story of these Christians who are being persecuted, and they go hide in a cave um, just outside of Ephesus. And then uh, the representative of the emperor uh, bricks them into the cave, and they go to sleep there. And then, and then the legend is that that they that they are asleep there until um, hundreds of years later, and and um, someone unblocks the unblocks the cave, and they go down into Ephesus, and they realize it's now a Christian city, and like what's going on? And we thought we were just asleep overnight, and and it's just a fun way to think about it, like a time machine. Who are the who are the thinkers that if they if they were to wake up today in this culture, um, who were they were experts on deconstruction in their era, and let's say they went to sleep for four hundred years and they woke up in in your city now and they just began to watch the news, they began to look at what's going on in the churches, they began to follow how Christianity is represented on social media. Um, and they would observe uh, what I mentioned before about, let's say, the politicization of, of Christianity. And, and what would they say to us? So that was, that was the, uh, the idea. And secondarily, um, I, wanted to, I wanted to say, look, at if, if you go through some, if, if your deconstruction is traumatic, Think of it like surgery. You're not gonna. You're not going to hire a plumber to come do a serious surgery on your body. You're going to get someone who knows what they're doing, knows what they're saying, and has a track record. So I picked seven of these historic figures who I regard as having a track record of expertise. Who, because our hearts are precious, our faith is precious. We're not deconstructing something external to ourselves. We sometimes think, oh, if I go burn down a church, that's deconstruction. No, it's this, your faith and your heart is going through a transformation that requires and deserves great care. So I bring in these folks, um, and sometimes they're not gentle, but they are thorough. And I, I feel like a big problem today is that deconstruction is half-baked. And it needs to be way more thorough. And it's it's just so trendy that that it, it's it's a plaything. But meanwhile, I'm talking to people whose lives depend on it, like where they've not only lost faith, they've lost they've lost meaning in life. And you'll see in the book there's a few examples where they're they're crying out to me in desperation, even from psych wards, and said, I did not know it would go this far. I'm like, well, you're almost there <laughs> because. There's this great Russian proverb that says, when you think you've hot, hit rock bottom, you'll see, you'll hear a knock from below. And uh, I want to suggest that below is, from even from beneath us, Jesus is knocking. He, you can't sink so low that you'll lose him. It's you got you got to sink low enough for him to to be found by him at times. I think. Anyway, those are all metaphors, but you get the idea. 
We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Let's go a little further there. In the book, you, you talk about the importance of communion with ourselves, others, creation, and God. Uh, why is communion critical for the journey of order, disorder, and reorder? Yeah, what I'm doing there, um, I would regard... Um, alienation and communion as good psychological modern um, equivalents to heaven and hell or what jesus in john john's gospel calls perishing and eternal life so what is perishing it's not going to hell someday when you die where people are already perishing well what does perishing mean well since from 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 the fall narrative in in the early chapters of Genesis, uh, we have an archetype of Adam and Eve representing all of humanity going into an experience of alienation, and um, and then the call back to paradise ultimately, um, you know, as as the veil is torn in the temple through the crucifixion of Jesus. The callback is into communion with with ourselves, with God, with others, the world. And so then communion, um, uh, synonyms to this would be presence, belonging, connection. This is what we're made for. Uh, The idea is, you know, God is love and he's made us to be loved and to love. And the the great commandments are to love God and to love our neighbor and then ultimately um, even the strangers and the enemy. So there's, so what does this love look like? Well, my Godfather calls it presence in communion. In other words, where I'm present to you and you're present to me in an attentive way that, that uh, creates space for an exchange of grace. And God is in that moment. Uh, Ron Williams wrote a really great little book called where God happens, where God happens is in that communion. But if I'm, if I'm experiencing alienation, I don't believe that God ever leaves us. I don't believe we can be 
separated from God because he's, he's united himself to all of us through the incarnation. But we can experience the pain of alienation. It would be like um, someone who turns away from the sun and, and creates a shadow and now is, is in bondage to the very shadow of his turning. And that's very alienating. Um, in a practical note, then, when someone goes through deconstruction, they may they may have a initial trauma inside their church community. That trauma could be, let's say, spiritual abuse, even or some kind of perversion of the gospel, and they're like, "I have to leave." I call those believers. If Jesus calls them to like get out of here, this has become dangerous. But there's the secondary trauma after you leave in your deconstruction if you don't have community. Maybe I even know people where their families have rejected them just for asking the wrong questions. So now they're out there experiencing alienation. And then Christ comes to us and he says, look, um, here's eternal life, that you would know God, the Father, and that you would know his Son who he sent. And that this fellowship, First John 1 says, that this fellowship with God, with, with the one that we've beheld his glory and um, seen his face, that we could have this together now. And so there's this kind of connection, belonging, and so on. And where I experience that um, in, in a huge way is I'm not just part of a, a church. I, I'm also part of 12-step recovery. And, and this seems to be the the dominant um, active ingredient in healing addicts. Uh, they've gone from some kind of alienating trauma. And now in those groups, they find acceptance and belonging and care. And, and so that's the kind of communion where grace happens, which is we're saved by grace. And this isn't just some ethereal commodity. It's about being loved and uh, loved by God through his people. Let's talk about liminality, um, mm -hmm. meaning threshold or space between liminality comes from the Latin word limen, which originally described this threshold of, of a door from one space to another. Why does liminality help emotionally and theologically define deconstruction? Um, yeah, one of the great things about so li liminal space, we could call it the in-between space or the transition space. And where, where you're just going from one state or way of being to another, and that that sometimes can take time. And in that liminal space, we feel bewilderment, we feel, we may feel um, loss, we may feel exodus, you know, so like, I'm leaving one, one thing while well, leaving that thing could be a prison break for some people. Um, could be launching out on their own for others, but um, but you can you can get really disoriented there. So so that's another metaphor then for for deconstruction. And what it what it really is helpful in thinking about is how inevitable deconstruction is then, because all of us pass through liminal spaces throughout our lives. Um, the first day you go to school, uh, the first you know, when you graduate from school, uh, when you go through puberty, puberty, um, when you get your first job, when you get your first kiss, when you maybe have get married, um, another liminal space is like that, the nine months pregnancy when my, my wife's going to have a baby, that's quite a, that's a delightful, but scary liminal space. 
And then later in life, um, you know, every time we, we change vocations and then a, some of the biggest ones, you're like, well, I wish I could just grow until I'm stable. Well, wait till retirement. That's a shocker. And then on top of that, um, facing mortality. And especially if you have to, if you survive the death of your spouse, you know, that's like an amputation. So all through our lives, we have a natural arc from birth to death that involves a series of these liminal spaces. And, and every one of them is, is probably uh, unavoidable. In fact, if we try to avoid them, we're in trouble, but we hope to pass through them in a way that they become like, um, you know, positive transitions instead of some kind of death. I suppose something is dying, but every, every tomb can become a womb. Um, so, so I find that to be helpful, but also I think what I bring to the table in the book is that instead of just thinking, looking backwards and looking forwards to say, hang on, what if, what if the door is important? And Jesus said, I am the door. And that means in the, in my most vulnerable places, in those liminal spaces, um, that might actually open me up to encounter with Christ in a powerful way, like as with Matt, Moses at the burning bush. You know, that's in a that's in a liminal space that he encountered um, God, and that and and that he was able to to go from there in, into the his vocation, really his spiritual vocation. So it's it's it doesn't have to be an enemy. Liminal space can be a venue for uh, for meeting God. As we look back over the the last decade of church decline, only heightened by the COVID nineteen pandemic, and um, uh, what what do you think is on the other side of this liminal journey that many people of faith have left the institutional church? Yeah. Oh, good question. Um. So I I would play it out this way. Pre COVID, I was already consciously observing a mass exodus happening already and and i was very aware of a kind of alienation going on that people didn't seem to be even trying to overcome on a big scale right then covid hits and suddenly we realize in lockdown that we don't like alienation it's like good <laughs> and so so during covid we began to to make greater efforts at connection um, in defiance of of lockdowns, for example. So on my street, I live in a little cul-de-sac of 10 houses, uh, you know, and before COVID, I had some neighbors on this cul-de-sac and I didn't know their names after 10 years. And I didn't care. And so there was a kind of alienation in my community that I was flippant about. And then suddenly we're like in lockdown and we're like, this is not good. We need community. We need connection. And so suddenly people are out on the street and, you know, they're social distancing or maybe they're masked up, but all of a sudden we find out the names of every man, woman, and child on our street and begin greeting them outside by name and hanging out in, you know, like, okay, this is a good direction. Then we get to the end of COVID, you know, and a lot of people who weren't able to attend churches, this became an opportunity for them to not go back without drama. So maybe they wanted to leave before, but they, they didn't want the headache. 
and they didn't know if they should and they didn't want the drama and now 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 let's say they've been out of church for I, I couldn't go to the monastery for over 18 months. And now I could. I'm like, but do I want to? Do I feel like it? I kind of enjoy my Sunday morning walks now. And if you're from a church where, you know, you could take it or leave it, and maybe maybe not going felt a lot more relaxing and less and less problematic, then you just don't go back. And so I'm I'm starting to think that there might have been in two years we might have seen for a forty percent dropout rate. I don't know. Okay, now what? <laughs> so what I'm looking at now is um, I, I think we're seeing a um, a couple things. One is um, those who recognize that their churches had become unfaithful in profound ways, like especially around. Um, where evangelicals are primarily becoming a political lobby rather than a religious movement. Uh, those kind of churches, it's like, well, I'm not going back to that. And you know what? That's probably good. But then that means, okay, where do I find connection? And so what I'm looking at are, what are the new forms that are emerging? Um, how, are, how are we seeing something, alternatives, let's say, to the mega church? that are more community oriented. And maybe there's things that were happening that we should count as church that we just didn't count before. So I think we have to be more creative in how we imagine what, what non-institutional forms could look like, but even the, in the institution, um, how can they remake themselves in a way that's much healthier? And um, yeah, so I mentioned before, but you know, my primary fellowship now is a twelve-step meeting, and and then I attend the I attend the services at the monastery. My wife actually co-pastors another church, and and now it is a complete hybrid of online and on-site uh, meetings, and and they're going to keep doing that permanently. So a lot of churches weren't streaming or or uh, before and didn't believe in online church, and then like kind of they had to. And then they realized that was a lifeline to some people. And they're like, why would we stop that then? So my wife's church in Abbotsford, BC, Canada has members that participate actively in real interaction um, from the UK and even Morocco. And, and so like, okay, I guess we roll with it then. Uh, this might be a grace. It might be a mercy that is different than we thought the ideal was, which might not have been so ideal anyway. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. Since relationships with others is a critical part of deconstruction, what's your wisdom for those journeying through this process where there might not be a safe community of faith to do so? So... I would start I would start by saying 
there is a safe community. It might not be in your neighborhood. So, for example, a Word of Life Church, WOLC.com. They meet in St. Joseph, Missouri, but they've developed, I think they're a really safe church, and they've developed an excellent online community. So I'll I'll, I'll do a shout out for them right now. Um, and, And they have ways of connecting that that take you beyond just watching TV. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just, it's not just observing. Um, You can become part of small groups and cohorts that where where there's real support. Uh, Second, I would say that there are those of us who in our deconstruction, we're like, well, I don't want to go. I don't want to be part of the kind of church I was in. But the kind of church I was in might have discounted every other kind of church as being subpar. But remember, (laughs) take into account the source. So, for example, the town I grew up in, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church that that was evangelical. And we were it was very clear to us that there were a few other evangelical churches in town. But but the impression I got is you would never find God in an Anglican church or a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church or um, a Catholic church. Those weren't real Christians. Well, it's like, well, wait a minute. If you're leaving your church now, let's say you don't want to be a Baptist anymore, (laughs) then then it's like, well, there's nowhere to go. It's like, wait a minute. There's five other places to go in walking distance. Well, those don't count. Who said those don't count? You might want to check out to see whether in your deconstruction you've actually become more like those places. So I would, I would just, I would give a, I would give that a look, anyways, and and just to see what kind of different churches are are um, would be that cross cultural experience where you actually feel welcome and at home. And then finally, to have a circle of of friends who you can trust and who are non judgmental listeners. I just can't believe that it's true that there's nobody like that in our lives, you know, at the, just at least go to McDonald's on a Sunday morning and see if anybody there has silver hair and go ask them their story. You might form a powerful friendship with somebody who's really helpful to you. But um, since I was 17 years old and now I'm 58, I've never not had an older caring mentor. And maybe I'm just good at finding them, but I just think like, no, you have to be humble enough to think I have something to learn from other people who are more experienced than me, even if they see things differently. And um, it's so rich. And really, on a few occasions, they've saved my life, you know, so have a look around at who are the people that you would like to be like and see if they'll give you their time. Lastly, what's your hope for your readers? Um, I hope that my readers will will orient themselves towards the God of love who's revealed in Jesus. And my suspicion is this, that many of them had a secondhand relationship, and I don't think that's possible. So a lot of those who are leaving the churches are also leaving Jesus because he was just a doctrine or an idea. And I don't think there's a future for that kind of Christianity. In fact, I kind of hope there isn't. What we need, I was promised as a young Baptist, and I feel like God delivered, was that when I um, uh, when I surrendered my life to Christ, that I would get a personal relationship. 
And I, I'm finding that those, no matter how long we've been in church, those who leave Jesus in their de deconstruction cannot relate in reality to, to a personal relationship. And this week, someone said, I'm afraid of losing Jesus. I'm like, what do you mean? Is he some commodity that you can misplace? Where's the part where he's a, a living person who's not leaving you? And they're like, well, I guess I've never met him. I'm like, that's, I'm, I'm so sorry. How did we, how did we pull that fast one on you? And so we've, we've got to learn how to, um, what meeting Jesus even means, how, what a personal relationship actually looks like so that it's personal and relational. And I try to cover that in probably the last 50 pages of my book. Um, and my next book is going to be about exclusively about that, how God can become real to uh, real to us in a way that um, that it's it's a transforming uh, presence of a living friend, you know, who and that prayer is a real conversation with the one who's in you and not going anywhere. Our guest is Bradley Jersak. Book is Out of the Embers. You can stay connected with Bradley by visiting Bradley Jersak or BradJersak.com. Bradley, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. And thank you for reminding us that Jesus is not ashamed to stand with us, one and all, and share our grief and puzzlement as we go through what the great J.R. Tolkien put, enchantment, disenchantment, and re-enchantment. Amen. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, A Model Ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.